Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Ann Geisinger. I'm Executive Director at EBC and your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, from renewable energy to stormwater management, brownfields redevelopment to climate change, the list goes on. The energy and environmental industries are in an exciting time and we're here to explore it all. And today I'm talking to Chris Gloninger and Kirk Bosma, both of Woods Hole Group. Chris is a senior climate scientist with Woods Hole Group and has many years of emergency management, community engagement, and risk communication work under his belt. He was also an actual on-camera meteorologist, and I would love to hear a fun fact about what it's like to be live on camera every day, because I just can't imagine that. <laughs> Literally, it changes every day. There is no day-to-day routine. Every day, the weather is different, so that means every day my job is different on air. That sounds, I mean, that's a great response. I can totally see that. So thank you. Also joining the pod today is Kirk Bosma, a senior coastal engineer with Woods Hole Group and also their vice president of innovation, which is a very cool title to have. You know, I think when we first met you and I both found out that we're originally from West Michigan. So am I right in that? Yeah, that's correct. And people sometimes wonder, think that Michigan's in the middle of the country. What does that have (laughs) to do with the ocean and coastal stuff? When I first took my wife out to Michigan, she was like, oh, it's just some lakes out there. And she had this impression they were really small until she saw the Great Lakes and realized they really are like oceans. Yeah, yeah, I know. It is um, hard to understand how large they are until you're actually standing on the beach looking at what you think is the ocean. And it's actually just like Michigan. (laughs) Not just like Michigan. It is like Michigan. So thank you both for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And uh, let's get started. So I do like to start our episodes out learning a little bit about your education and career path. So if you can just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today, Chris, that would be very helpful. The story actually starts in second grade when Hurricane Bob hit my hometown on eastern Long Island. I was fascinated by the wind. We were without power for a couple of weeks. And then it was followed up by the perfect storm, which obviously there's a book and a movie on that. Uh, But that fueled my passion for meteorology. And then I went to the university or Plymouth State University for meteorology and a focus on communications. And it wasn't until later on in my career that I went back to school for emergency management, a little bit of an interdisciplinary uh, degree. It's an emergency management, but it's a focus on climate mitigation and adaptation along with risk communication. I get 20 years in broadcast TV I saw this need to have meteorologists, to have communicators in this climate resilient space, a desperate need, and that's how I ended up at Woods Hole Group. That's really cool. Thanks. And what about you, Kirk? Yeah, so I don't know if I can remember all the way back to second grade, like Chris <laughs> did, um, but I do recall, you know, my senior year of college trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and in engineering. I I had a senior project on the shore of Lake Michigan where there was significant erosion and got really interested and intrigued by coastal processes and waves and sediment transport and how that all worked. Ended up going to graduate school to get a degree in, in coastal engineering. And then 26 years later, still working on the coastline, both freshwater and saltwater for that matter, and looking more recently at nature-based approaches to shoreline protection, um, also climate change impacts, physics-based numerical modeling, which I do a lot of, all geared towards kind of 
helping the environment and protect the coastline against uh, various coastal risks. That's great. Thanks, Kirk. Together, you're both working on coastal projects from a variety of perspectives. And one thing we're going to talk about today is learning a little bit more about meteorology and how it interacts with the climate change work that you both do. So maybe let's start super high level. Chris, what is meteorology? Despite what some people think, it is not uh, meteorites and space. It is the science of the Earth atmosphere, which is very similar to ocean dynamics and how the water moves. It's very similar in that there are waves up in the atmosphere, like waves in the ocean, but those waves in the atmosphere help what help drive our weather day to day. And as our climate changes, what well, we're starting to see climate change affect our day-to-day weather. So we're noticing changes with stronger storms, more frequent storms, and then that increase in global temperatures, both on land and also water too, as those water temperatures, ocean water temperatures continue to climb way above average. The first week of February, they hit an all-time record high again. Uh, And that was just since last year when we had um, the highest ocean water temperatures. And then that all drives weather and it is changing as we go into the future. So how much does somebody who is working in meteorological science or research interact with somebody who's doing work on the ocean, ocean research, that kind of thing? That's a great question. The American Meteorological Society, which is based in Boston since the 1800s, uh, holds their annual meeting every year. About 7,000 scientists converge on a city somewhere in the United States for their annual conference. It's the, the biggest water, weather, and climate conference in the country. And the focus this year on the entire week was the intersection of uh, basically weather and ocean dynamics and climate change. There's a huge connection between the two. And it was fascinating hearing about that research. I was there for the entire week. And that connection is only going to grow in the future with storm surge with stronger systems like similar to what we had in december and then twice in january these atmospheric rivers that a pretty storm surge which you would typically think with a coastal storm like a tropical storm or a hurricane but these southeast winds that race up the coastline produce a surge widespread from maryland up to maine typically with hurricanes for example the worst of the surge is around that center of low pressure. This is experienced across a much wider geographic area. And the other point is it may not be uh, to the magnitude of what we would see during a hurricane, but these atmospheric rivers and what we call sou'easters or nor'easters perhaps enter into multiple tide cycles, which kind of compounds that flooding issue. So that is the direct connection between uh, what my colleague Kirk Bosma does and what I do in the meteorology realm working together to better understand those relationships, those connections, and how they will change going forward. It is interesting you mentioned that atmospheric rivers, and we are going to talk about a little bit about that in a minute, but it is using the terminology that you would use for a regular water resource, a river, but putting it up in the sky. So again, showing that connection between the you know atmospheric stuff in meteorology, meteorology and the hydrologic things in rivers, lakes, oceans, things like that, and good parallel there. So 
I know one thing that we wanted to talk about a little bit was this atmospheric river, which I don't know too much about, but you start hearing lately in um, the news and the weather report and things like that. So what does it mean and how will it change in the coming years for New England? For every degree the atmosphere warms, on average, it holds about 4% more moisture every degree Fahrenheit. Kirk looks into the uh, finer details of that, but that is a, a rough estimate. So if you just take that, it might be a, a tough statistic to uh, conceptualize, but we saw it this winter when we almost had tropical downpours with these storms that moved in, especially during the month of January. It's essentially the latent heat release. And whenever you have that energy, that's what kind of fuels the storms. And uh, in this case, when you have higher global temperatures, there's more fuel to work with. And climate science shows that we may not see a larger number of these storms going forward, or these atmospheric rivers going forward. However, the ones that do form will be more intense. They'll hold more moisture. In fact, if you look at the water that flows through the Mississippi River, uh, 27 times that can be within an atmospheric river, which is quite remarkable. And that goes back to my, yes, oceans have currents, they have waves. Well, the jet stream is essentially the atmosphere current, and the waves are the troughs and ridges that we have up in the atmosphere. So again, just those similarities between the two sciences. So we might want to back up a step and define what an atmospheric river is. It's a channel of... Essentially, as if you, if you look at the uh, low-level jet stream, those strong winds and those winds help intensify areas of low pressure. And the stronger the winds, the stronger the area of low pressure, and in turn, the stronger the winds at the surface, which also increases the storm surge potential. So you see that uh, one, almost like the butterfly effect. You have a strong wind at 950 millibars coincided with the storm, you get a stronger storm, stronger winds, stronger surge. One thing I'll add to this, I think that that's important to consider that Chris kind of mentioned. You know, when we think about hurricanes or tropical cyclones, right, that's kind of the holy grail of big storms, if you will. But those are very fast moving, very, you know, pinpoint type events in, in many cases that um, can roll through, especially New England, very, very quickly. With our tide range up here, it's it's really important when those occur relative to the tide because they move so quickly. And so the probability of really getting, you know, a hurricane up here at the right time with the right track and and so on and so forth is is kind of low. But with these southeasters and nor'easters, they're much larger scale. They're not as intense and strong at their center. But because they last longer and are bigger and last over multiple high tide cycles, for somewhere like Boston that has a 10-foot-plus tide range, if it lasts long, you're almost guaranteed to have a problem with each storm because you're going to get part of that process of the storm happening during a high tide cycle. And so the fact that these are occurring right, are, are really important for, for New England because they do have that longer and wider expanse of potential threat. So, Kirk, you're going to have to use this information, right, when you're working on projects, because we now know that these nor'easters, for example, they might have more water in them from the increase in global temperature, and they're going to 
I don't know, will they stick around longer, Chris? I, I'm not sure exactly the dynamics here, but they're going to have a bigger impact in some way, shape, or form. And so, Kirk, when we're thinking about projects on the coastline, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You can come up with an example, but what? how are you integrating some of this knowledge and research on the meteorological side when you're coming down to actually building a project or dealing with a project? Yeah, so, I mean, there's sea level rise, which is a threat that is this longer-term a general increase in the water level that that's only going to compound the problems that we see with these types of storm. Obviously, you have a higher water level, throw a storm on top of that, you get more energy because you have deeper water in areas than you may have seen before. So there's there's this increasing risk level that starts to grow for, for much the New England coastline and area. The important thing, I think, from a engineering perspective and in a project perspective is that we're no longer in a space where we can just pick a value and say, this is what we need to design to, right? Historically, people would say, okay, there's a hundred year return period level of water or a storm that might occur. And so that's a real good target to design for if you have some critical infrastructure that you want to um, maintain and not be damaged. That design parameter now is not consistent or stable, right? It's it's evolving, it's changing. So the design process also has to change in terms of not being static. So what we're doing more and more is looking at very adaptable, flexible designs that are able to change with climate conditions going forward. So I'll give you an example of one of those types of projects that we've worked on. So a dock facility in Massachusetts, you, when you have a dock or a wharf, right, you need to be able to access the water from the boat, right? And so if, a, if you wanted to design a resilient feature or wharf for, say, conditions 100 years from now, and you use sea level rise projections and storms and bring in the meteorology to that, it would give you a specific elevation that would be much higher than what you would have today, right? And if you can imagine, I really want this pier, this wharf to be functional over that whole time period, and I don't want it to to get damaged, and I don't need it to be underwater. Well, if you design that to that level today, you wouldn't even be able to access your boat at low yeah. tide because you'd be so far below what your elevation of the, the dock or the wharf is. You also have to consider how that infrastructure connects to the other neighborhood utilities that that are important to it so the road to access the dock the electric electrical supplies the homes the 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 uh, utilities water supplies those type of things so you can't just say well i have this target design and i'm going to do that because it doesn't function at the same time you don't want to spend millions of dollars for something that is going to be potentially underwater you know in 20 years so we had a particular case. We were doing this for a research pier down in Woods Hole for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And the design was to oversize the piles that the dock was on, put it at a certain level where it was still functional and usable for getting research equipment on and off the vessels, access to the vessels. But then because we had oversized piles that the pier was built on, you could increase the deck platform and weight over time. As sea level rise increased, 
the buildings and the structures on that had high, very high first floor elevations and ceilings so that you could increase that floor level through time without uh, impacting the space requirements. And that allowed the ability to not have to reconstruct the whole facility, but you could flexibly manage the design through time as the climate evolved and, and changed. This is really important because it's an uncertain future. And so we don't know exactly when or how long it's going to take for the water level and storms to reach a certain level. And so you have to do that in, in your approach to flexible design. We're doing a lot of this type of research at the Stone Living Lab, where I'm an engineering director as well, looking at nature-based solutions, um, more flexible design approaches to provide more tools for the engineers and architects and designers to utilize when they think about designing things, especially in coastal environments for, for climate change conditions. And is the push to be developing, I mean, I'm sure Woods Hole Geographic Institute asked to make sure this is more resilient. Are you seeing that across the board from a lot of your clients, you know, who are doing things at the coastline that they, they are thinking forward and realizing that the, the design's going to have to shift for them, for their project? Not always, right? So there, there's a number of clients that are, are very well informed and understand that they need to think really well about how climate's going to influence the service life of their specific facilities. I would also say to the state's credit, the state of Massachusetts, they've been very forward thinking about how climate change impacts development designs, assets across the state, and are really building in climate resilience into the building codes and regulations that are starting to evolve a little bit. So that's been helpful in the process. And more often than not, I would say clients obviously want to, when they're investing in significant infrastructure or designs, they do want it to be resilient over the long term. And there's many awesome projects across the state and, and towns and cities that are really forward thinking in terms of how they need to start to adapt. It's not an easy process. And, and one thing we're really focused on is helping them prioritize and phase in these resiliency measures over time. And so we've done a lot of work in relationship to when do you need to take action, right? And on what specific critical features are the higher priority? Because you can't address everything at the same time. It's fiscally, you know, impossible to do that. So... Chris, to get back to the meteorological impacts here and a little bit about how that relates to these projects, Kirk mentioned that it's it's much harder now to predict what kind of changes we're going to see. We, we kind of have a sense that it's going to get harder to have coastal infrastructure last a long period of time. But what are, what are you seeing in the world of, okay, what is a 100-year storm now? What is a 500-year storm now? What are, what are those predictions looking like now? I've had this conversation with Kirk, and when you look at infrastructure projects, a lot of them were designed for the climate that that location is currently in, and it, it's designed based on climatological data. That's the problem right there, assuming that the climate is stable, and it is not. That is when you start to have to shift and focus on working on these projects based on 
forward thinking climatological modeling and to see how that 100 year rain event is going to be different. How much more moisture is it going to hold? And it's overwhelming when you think about the work that needs to be done. Kirk and his team internally are working on ways to essentially help prioritize, communities prioritize. And it goes back to where we're spending our money. And sometimes that's when the issue becomes a little bit politicized, when you don't want to spend a lot of money up front. But in 2023, we had a record number of billion dollar disasters in this country. And that's the disaster that cost taxpayers at least a billion dollars. It's fiscally irresponsible to let that keep happening and rebuilding infrastructure to what it was when that's not what it's going to be. Um, for every dollar spent on mitigation and adaptation, the savings and recovery costs anywhere from 6 to $7 on that dollar. That is fiscally responsible. But you can't do it all at once because many communities don't have that tax base. So prioritizing those projects is what's important. And bringing in the climate modeling is critical so you know how rainfall frequency and intensity will be changing over time. Uh, so that is one thing that we're looking at quite extensively going forward. And then rising sea level. A lot of wild cards with emissions. Unfortunately for our more aggressive emissions cuts that we were anticipating and hoping for, um, well, we're still admitting uh, CO2 at much higher levels than those more optimistic scenarios. So that is concerning. But that is, again, the wild card of how much we're able to cut, and that will kind of help us with how much glacial melt, you know, land glacial melt that we'll see going forward, and how much enters into the ocean system for rising sea level. So there are a lot of unknowns. What we do know, though, is that intensity of precipitation will go up, and we're, we are expecting uh, a lot of that sea level rise already to be baked in, be several feet by 2100. We just don't know the extreme end, right, because there are a lot of wild cards, but we do have a lot more confidence in, in precipitation and what how that's going to uh, change in our new climate. So we know that things are going to get more difficult. We know that the climate is changing, and we know that there's sometimes a contentious public discourse about that. So curious from your perspective as a meteorologist, Chris, and definitely as somebody who was on camera for a long period of time, how is meteorology or just the weather report a, a vehicle for the public to learn more about climate change to get exposed to, the, to these ideas and this research and this science? I'll start by saying that the week at the American Meteorological Society conference was a little alarming in the knowledge gap in the realm of climate change. Meteorologists are the station scientists. You have producers, writers, directors. They all have a degree in journalism, which requires a whole different skill set. But the meteorologist is the station scientist. And the American Meteorological Society has done a great job in their efforts, in their efforts to make sure that we're equipped to talk about all sciences. Right. If there's a tsunami, if there's an earthquake, a meteor shower uh, or a volcanic eruption, we know enough of the science to communicate it. Because technically none of those are your purview. <laughs> none of those are our purview. Right. But I do encourage TV meteorologists to educate about climate change because climate science and meteorology 
share a curriculum, essentially. It is important to improve climate literacy because these projects and communities depend on it. As dramatic as that sounds, this work needs to be done. It needs to be supported and it needs to be funded. And all of that involves community um, action. Helping the public understand how this weather event was made worse by climate change, what our future will look like because of climate change is critical. All of those projects that Tur Kirk talked about on a community level is based on public engagement. That is why it's important. And instead of polarizing it, politicizing it, we need to make sure we listen to the science. This is an interesting statistic. First, the, one of the issues we need to do is work on emissions. And, and again, that is one half of the piece of the puzzle. The other half is adapting. But atmospheric and climate scientists have more data to support that humans are affecting climate change than the medical community has that smoking causes cancer. Everyone acknowledges that smoking isn't healthy and good for you, but there are still a lot of people who see it as a pol polarizing political issue when it's not. So we have to understand the science. We have to be educated on that science. So we have to know that cutting emissions is important, but we also have to understand that adaptation, which is costly, is important. And people are going to want to spend the money unless they really understand the issue. That is a really, really good point, especially as it relates to these community projects, municipal projects, where there's going to be a conservation commission, there's going to be a group of the public who are, you know, asked for their input or who are on committees or town, you know, work groups or whatever, making decisions about stuff that they need to be educated about. So the more that this, the general public's knowledge increases, right? It's a great point, Chris, the, the better these these public meetings can go, the better these working groups can function because they're already starting with a base level of knowledge that's, you know, a little bit higher. And I do want to jump in on and just build on that briefly. Mm -hmm. The National Climate Assessment, the fifth climate assessment, yeah, actually included a chapter on the economy. And that's what we discussed during the American Meteorological Society conference because there's a lot riding on this. And when I say, when people ask for individual action, sure, getting solar and electric vehicles is fine, but there's stuff that's inexpensive to do that isn't going to cost you uh, loads of money. And that's sharing your input, showing up at public meetings, and also voting for somebody. And it doesn't have to be a political statement, just voting for somebody that takes the matter seriously. And that is somebody that's willing to spend money on these adaptation projects going forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So thank you both for being here today. I really appreciate it. And I just have one more question that I ask all of our guests here on the podcast. What is capturing your attention this week? So I'll go kind of this season as opposed to this week because it occupies sure. pretty much all my free time right now. I have a basically a framed picture in, in my house that my wife puts up every time this year, which is which says... Um, we temporarily pause this marriage for basketball season. Um, <laughs> and occupying most of my time, I, I have three kids. Somehow with three kids, they're on five different basketball teams. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, I coach two of them. And so we're very big basketball-based family that has a lot going on with that, that stuff. And I, I will say... I'm very interested and supportive of women's basketball. My daughter plays, and um, I really, really like 
that aspect of of this time of year. So great. That's a great one. That is a good question. And I am hoping for sunnier days. I just got out of a <laughs> week in Baltimore and it was cloudy. I got back to Massachusetts and it was cloudier. I just need some sunshine, some vitamin D. That is what's on my mind. <laughs> I could not agree with you more. The thing that been difficult for me is I really enjoy snow and like winter weather. I don't enjoy 40 degree rain. And I think yes. that that's the direction we're going in here in Boston area. And I almost, I'm just going to miss it. I'm going to miss having snowy winters. If this is the future, I don't, I, I heard sometime, I think a long time ago now, probably, um, I heard that the Boston area is going to be sort of like Washington, D.C. area in, the, you know, 50 years or something. And this was probably 10 years ago. And I don't want to live in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I want to live in New England where it snows and where it's not like a swamp like down there. So. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Again, thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. And um, hope you guys have a good rest of your day. Thanks for having us on. I really appreciate that have been here thanks for the the invitation and uh i really enjoyed uh participating in this podcast i hope you enjoyed today's episode with kirk and chris there is a deep tie between meteorology and climate science and in particular the impact meteorology has on actual boots on the ground climate work and i really enjoyed exploring it with them you will find links from the discussion in the show notes as well as a link back to our website ebcne.org Please interact with the podcast on whatever platform you're listening. Likes, rates, reviews make a big impact. And I hope you will consider supporting this work. Our next episode will be in two weeks and we're going to dive into biodiversity. What is it and why is it important? See you then. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC Fall Intern Hayden Adair for his research and wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senek Music 2023.